This week we're going to be starting a new series on the Lord's Prayer. For this week and the next four weeks, taking a look at these words of Jesus. Most followers of Jesus have a desire to pray, to pray more, to have a deeper and fuller and richer prayer life. Sometimes I'm not always sure what that means. Sometimes I think people look at others and think that their prayers are eloquent or somehow stronger or better because they use bigger words or put them together more smoothly. But at its heart, prayer is not about how eloquent we are. Prayer is really about our relationship with God. And so we're going to be looking at the Lord's Prayer, these words that we heard earlier from the book of Matthew, these words that we said earlier, as a way to explore a life of prayer, to explore how Jesus prayed and what he taught us and what he encouraged us about prayer. So the Lord's Prayer is found there in Matthew chapter 6. You can also find it in Luke chapter 11, a slightly different version. And this isn't unusual. It shouldn't surprise us. We expect that Jesus traveled around to many, many different towns, and he probably taught on prayer in many, if not all of those. And he may not have said it exactly the same way in every place, and that shouldn't bother us. There are teachers who go around today and they tell the stories and they teach things, and they often say things a little bit differently. Sometimes it's just a matter of speaking to a different audience to say things in a slightly different way. Sometimes it's changing phrasing, changing the way you say things simply for variation. And so when we have two different gospels, two different stories of the life of Jesus, Matthew and Luke, it's not surprising that they record slightly different ones. And so we're going to be looking at it. We'll probably be using most weeks the story, the prayer as it's told in Matthew chapter six. But feel free to check over into Luke chapter 11 and see what's going on there too. But as we enter into this time of study, I want us to think about this as an invitation to a life of prayer. It's not a series of study so much on the technique of prayer. It's realizing that prayer is about this relationship and it's entering into a life of prayer. It's a way of experiencing it. There can be a temptation sometimes when we're reading our Bible, when we're exploring it to make it into an academic exercise. We don't want to do this, especially with something like prayer. One writer said it this way, to make it an academic exercise, to make it an academic exercise, to study the Lord's Prayer is to be like a death row prisoner who has received a pardon from the governor and stands in his cell studying the governor's signature, but never leaving the cell. Jesus gave us a prayer, not to study, but to pray and to enter into that life of prayer. So I would encourage you as we go through these coming weeks and as we explore and as we learn and grow together, that you would also find ways to experience it, to enter into this prayer that the Lord gave us. And there might be different ways you can experience and I'd offer four of those even as we begin our time. One is to maybe use it as the way to begin your time of prayer or a way to end your time of prayer. We do that often here at Fruitland Covenant, where at the end of our time of prayer together, we say the Lord's Prayer together. You can do that in your personal time of prayer, or maybe use it as the way to start your prayer. 
A second way you might use it is as a framework for your prayer. So there, you notice these little phrases in it, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And you can spend some time praying over that phrase. And then thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And enter into a time with that particular phrase. So that would be a second way that you could do it. A third way that you might want to experience and enter into the Lord's Prayer is to use it as what some traditions call a breath prayer. And what this is, is you find ways to just repeat it to yourself over a period of time. Maybe as you're walking, you simply say the prayer quietly to yourself, Our Father, and go through it, and then repeat it again. And the idea behind this is not vain repetition, but the idea behind it is to allow it to sink in so it becomes as natural as breathing. This is why it's sometimes referred to as a breath prayer. This is a little longer than often what people use as breath prayers, but the idea is it becomes a part of your subconscious, a part of your way of thinking. And so our fourth and final way you might want to experience is to allow it to be your prayer for the week. And what you might do is take each one of those different phrases and try one for each day. So maybe on Sunday, you focus on the Our Father, and on the next day it's the Thy Kingdom Come on Monday, and then on, on Tuesday it's Give Us This Day Our Daily Bread. And so that might be another way that you can experience it. But I again, encourage you to find ways to experience this as a prayer. So let's now turn to what Jesus had to teach us about prayer. And we're going to be in Matthew chapter 6 today. And Matthew chapter 6 follows... Matthew chapter 5, exactly. And so we know that, and we've learned that, that the Bible is put together, and we have these chapters and verses that were put there later, but we're encouraged to read not just these little chunks, but to see it as part of a story. And so when we come to Jesus' teaching here on prayer, in the sixth cha- what we know is the sixth chapter of Matthew, we realize he's been teaching before this. At the end of chapter 4, It says that Jesus is going around healing the sick and proclaiming the kingdom of God. And then chapter 5 begins this teaching, what is often referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. This picture of Jesus like a new Moses going up to the mountain and teaching about God's ways. And it begins by Jesus teaching about what life in the kingdom looks like. This upside down kingdom where he begins by talking about He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. He talks about the blessings and how things are turned upside down. And then he talks about in the kingdom how what matters is what's in our heart, not just our external actions. And moving into chapter 6, he talks about being careful about not paying too so much attention to what others think, but to focus on our actions. And that's really where we pick up Jesus' prayer here, or his teaching on prayer in chapter 6. And he begins and says, When you pray, do not be like the hypocrites. And he's talking about how sometimes it seems that people were focused on others noticing them in prayer. And so typical Jewish practice of the day was to pray at least three times a day. And one of those would be around midday. And so what Jesus, I think, might be suggesting is that there were some of people who would make sure that when it was time for noonday prayers, they were out in a public place and they would find a prominent place and make sure that people noticed them praying. And Jesus says, that's not the way to pray. But he said, you're, instead, you're supposed to go and find a quiet place. Close the door and pray to your father who is unseen. And so he's talking about this way of prayer that's not about 
performance for others, but about a relationship with God. And then he says, and when you pray, do not keep on babbling like the pagans. And we hear the word pagan and we maybe have a picture of what that means. But for the original audience, pagan simply meant non-Jewish people. And in the non-Jewish tradition, it was not unusual to have lengthy, extensive prayers. These long, elaborate prayers. And part of the idea was you had to convince the God of what you needed. You maybe first had to enter into a long prayer to simply get the God's attention. And then once you had the God's attention, then you had to hold that attention and maybe use some elaborate rhetoric in order to get the God to answer your prayers. Jesus says, it's not like that with our God. You don't need anything elaborate. In fact, Jesus says, God already knows what you need before you ask, which often leads some people to ask, well, if God already knows, then why should I ask? And that's not the point Jesus is making. He's saying, you don't need to get God's attention. God is already listening, waiting for you to ask. And so go ahead and ask. And then he says, this then is how you should pray. And I remember hearing the Lord's Prayer all growing up and thinking sometimes we say it all the time and not really thinking about it. Jesus means it when he says, this is how you pray. This is a way for you to pray. In fact, this is the way to pray. And now Jesus may have meant use these words, but I think Jesus really meant it as this is a framework. This is the way to pray. This is an approach to prayer. Do we have to say these exact words every single time? No, I don't think so. But I think if we long for a life of prayer, if we long for a life of prayer like Jesus had, and that's really our model, is to long to be in relationship with God the Father like Jesus was, to have a life of prayer like Jesus did. As I often quote one of my favorite authors, Dallas Willard, who said, the goal of the Christian life is to live our lives as Jesus would live it if he were us. And central to the life of Jesus was a life of prayer. And so to live a life of prayer like Jesus is to pray the prayer that he taught us to pray. And so we begin, and we begin to pray that. And we begin with our Father. And he starts off, and these couple words right at the beginning are critical to it. Because first of all, it reminds us who we're praying to. We're not simply worrying out loud, but in fact, we're talking to someone in particular. And that someone we're talking to is God the Father. And so Jesus says, this is the place you have to start when you pray. It is so important because if we get off track at the very beginning, it can go wrong. If we forget who we're talking to and we forget, more importantly, the nature of who it is we're talking to. If we forget the nature and fail to understand the nature of what God is like, our prayers will go off. And so we begin with our Father. Now I know some people are hesitant to use the language of Father. That there are those out there, and some of you listening today, who may have had terrible experiences with your earthly Father. But I think we should be cautious in throwing out the language of Father because of our own personal experiences. Because here when we're talking, we're praying, it says, our Father in heaven. We're recognizing that the father we're praying to is a different father. 
and that the language of Father is language that God has given to us, language that Jesus has given to us. And so any language we use, any phrase we use is going to be burdened in some way for somebody. But I would suggest we use the language that God has given to us of Father. And the thing is, Jesus is not the first one to use this language. This phrasing of Abba, Father, and Abba being the Aramaic expression for Father. And sometimes people say, well, this was the expression of a, a little child, and it, it means Daddy. It was certainly used by children to, like we would use, to say Daddy. But it's not uniquely mean that. That was a scholar in the 1970s that put forth this theory, and it became popular because we like that. But the language of Abba, the language of Father, has a much longer and a deeper tradition than that. The language of Father dates back to the Old Testament. Jesus wasn't didn't come on the scene and introduce something radical and new and say, oh, we should call God Father. The Jewish people, the people of God, knew and understood this language of Father. For example, the book of Exodus, the story of God's liberation of his people from slavery. In chapter 4, in verse 22 and 23, where God is speaking to Moses and he's telling him what he should say to Pharaoh when he returns. Hear these words in Exodus chapter 4, beginning at verse 22. He says, Then say to Pharaoh, this is God speaking to Moses, say this to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son. And I told you, let my son go so he may worship you. Now we don't hear the word father, but he's referring to Israel as his son. And if Israel is his son, then God is the father. Similar language again in Isaiah chapter 63, uh, verse 16. And it says this, but you are our father. Though Abraham does not know us or Israel acknowledges, you, Lord, are our father. Our redeemer from of old is your name. And so even in these two passages, first in Exodus and then in Isaiah, we begin to see a connection between the idea of father and redeemer. And the redeemer is the one who sets the people free, who frees them and releases them from slavery. And if we're in Isaiah, we could go over just to chapter 64, uh, verse 8, where it says, Yet... You, Lord, are our father. We are the clay, you are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. And here we get the image of father as creator. And so those language gets used. And then one more. And this is from the book of Jeremiah, chapter 31, verse 9. And at the end, it says, I will lead them beside streams of water on a level path where they will not stumble. Because I am Israel's father, and Ephraim is my firstborn son. And here we hear language of the father as the caregiver. So we have father as redeemer, father as creator, father as caregiver. About 15 times probably in the Old Testament, we hear this language of it, but it kind of falls into one of those three categories usually as redeemer, creator, caregiver. Now, 15 times, especially when we look at the size of our Old Testament, is not a whole lot. Especially when we consider coming to Jesus, and Jesus comes out on the scene, and in the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, 
Over 170 times, Jesus uses this language of father. So it's in the Old Testament, we have this, this foundation load, but Jesus comes and fulfills it out and says, this is the way, this is the primary way to think about who God is in our relationship with him as father. He takes this thing. And one of the amazing things about it is Jesus has eternally existed in relationship with father. So we have this theology, this way of thinking and trying to understand a God who is really beyond our understanding. We think of God, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, this eternally existing in relationship, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so this relationship of God, the Father, and Jesus, the Son, is an eternal relationship in which they have been in this eternal dance of love. But now we come to this place here where Jesus teaches this prayer. And he has always been in relationship with God and seen him as father. And now he invites us to enter into that same kind of relationship, to say, our father. And it's amazing. And so we're coming to God who knows our needs. And so we begin with our father because that orients our prayers. That helps us think about the way we're entering into prayer. That we're coming to the God who is our creator. We're coming to the God who is our redeemer. We're coming to the God who is our caregiver. And so as we think about that, when we go to God in prayer, that's the place we start. That's the attitude we come with. We don't come with an attitude of, I'm coming to God, the one who's really mad at me. It isn't an attitude of, I'm coming to the God who is stingy and doesn't really want to give me anything. We're not coming to the God who wants to squash us down. We're not coming to the God who has his head buried in his cell phone like I sometimes do and may not hear what I'm asking, but we're coming to the God who loves us, who cares us, the creator, and he longs to hear our prayers. And so Jesus says, start with that. You have to get that right. And when you get that right, it all flows from there. And so I want us to think for a few minutes about those three kind of languages, those three, three categories, those three placeholders, if you will, that were introduced to us in the Old Testament. First, God the Father, as our creator. And thinking about God as the one who created us and knows us. Jesus, a little while later in the Sermon on the Mount, talks about the birds and the flowers and how we can see that if God clothes the flowers of the field, that if he feeds the birds, how much more won't he care for us? And another way I was thinking of it was, I was thinking about how we make things sometimes. Maybe you work with wood and you craft something out of wood or you like to sew or to knit or to crochet and you create something or you, you bake a pie. You weld something and you put it together. You rebuild an engine. And when you have done something, when you've created it, you have a special and a unique understanding of it. You know exactly all the parts, all the pieces that went into it. You know how to care for it. You know how to maintain it. And so when we begin to think about God as our creator, if God is the one who created us, he knows us. He fully understands all that we need and how best to care for us. And we see this in the life of Jesus, that he trusted God and knew that God cared for him 
knew that God would take care of him. And so last, our previous sermon series looked at these last words of Jesus as he was on the cross. And some of those, he used that language of father. And one of the phrases Jesus said as he was dying on the cross was, Father, into your hands, I commend my spirit. He had an absolute trust in God as his creator, the one who knew exactly what he needed, that a God who would catch him and hold him. The second placeholder, if you will, that we talked about from the Old Testament was God as redeemer. That God is the one who rescued his people. That God is the one who would go to extreme lengths, to any length, to rescue his people. And we just celebrated that last week as we celebrated the resurrection of Jesus. That Jesus died on the cross for our sins, to free us from slavery to sin, to to bring about forgiveness of our sins, to defeat the powers of evil at great cost. He redeemed us and bought us back, purchased us for his own. God the Father is the Redeemer. And this, so as we enter into this time of prayer, this is a language of hope. We're saying our Father, our Father who is our Redeemer, and we cling to God. And we think about Jesus, again, words on the cross, Father, forgive them. He understands the hope. He understands that God is one who will go to any length. And so when he asks for forgive, when he sees God as his father, he sees one as who redeemed. So we have God as creator, God as redeemer, and lastly, God as caregiver. Jesus, when he is first baptized, comes out of the water and God speaks to him and says, this is my son, whom I love. And out of that, Jesus flows. And so we begin to realize that God is the one who cares for us and that we are deeply, deeply loved by him. And so we think about those pictures of God as father, as our creator, as our redeemer, as our caregiver. And if we hold on to those, if we let those sink deep into us, if we begin to be embraced by those, if we begin to enter into this God-bathed world that Jesus invited us into, then we begin to see all that God wants for us. And so we enter from that place into our life of prayer. And that's what Jesus is wanting us to do. He's not simply teaching us a magical set of words, but he's giving us a picture of what a life of prayer looks like. And it's a life where we enter into by beginning with recognizing whom it is we're praying to and the nature of the God that we pray to. It's a God who loves us deeply. And I want to share with you a story of a young man who knew and who lived out, who didn't just know this in his head, but experienced and lived out what it meant to trust in his heavenly father and to know and to live into his love. And so this is the story of Prince Kabu. Prince Kabu was born in Liberia in the 1880s. His father was the chieftain of the, one of the tribes there. And there was a war with a neighboring tribe and the neighboring tribe took Kabu prisoner. And they beat him and they wanted his father to ransom him back for a large sum and his father was unable to do it. And there was, came a day where Prince Kabu was being beaten. And as he was being beaten, 
He tells the story of how he saw this bright and brilliant light that almost blinded him. And the light came and his ropes fell off and then he heard a voice saying, Kabu, run! And he ran off into the jungle and he escaped and he made his way to a city nearby. And there he encountered a, another young boy. And that young boy invited him to go to a local mission. And there the missionary Lizzie McNeil was telling the story of Paul and how Paul was on the road to Damascus. And on the road to Damascus, he encountered this blinding, brilliant light. And he heard the voice of God speaking. And Kabu realized and saw in that story his own story. And he gave his life to Jesus. And he spent time with Lizzie McNeil learning and growing what it meant to follow Jesus. And he finally came to the point where Lizzie felt like she couldn't teach him anymore. And Kabu wanted to learn more and to grow so that he could go and teach his tribe about this Jesus and about this heavenly father that he had come to know. And so Lizzie encouraged him to go to America and to meet Stephen Merritt, who was her mentor. And so Kabu found a ship and set sail for America. And Kabu, who was now known as Samuel Morris, having taken the name of Samuel Morris, who was one of the benefactors of the missionary, sailed to America on a ship. And while he was on the ship, he was treated horribly. But he continued to trust in and to talk about his heavenly father. And though he was beaten and though he was mistreated, his trust and love in his heavenly father won over many of the sailors and the captain of the ship he was sailing on who all gave their lives to Jesus. Kabu landed in New York City and there he met Stephen Merritt and Stephen Merritt took him to what is now Taylor University, which was at that time Fort Wayne College in Indiana. And there Samuel Morris began to study and to learn and to grow in his life with Jesus. And the people around him saw the love of God reflected in him. And they would often hear Samuel in his room praying at night. Or as he said it, he was talking to his heavenly father. You see, Samuel continued to trust and people came from miles around to hear him speak. And many, many people came to know Jesus because of Samuel Morris and his love and this abiding and deep trust that he had in his heavenly father. Unfortunately, Samuel Morris didn't do well with the cold in Indiana, and he became sick and eventually died, never returning again to Liberia, never having the chance to go back and to tell his tribe and his people about the love of his heavenly father. But Samuel Morris's deep love for his heavenly father, his relationship with God the Father inspired many others and started a new missionary movement out of Taylor University, which sent hundreds of men and women around the world and continues to do so today to tell people about the love of their Heavenly Father. Kabu, also known as Samuel Morris, knew deeply what it meant to love and to be loved by his Heavenly Father. And that's what Jesus was talking about in this prayer. That's what Jesus wants us to know as we enter into our time of prayer. I want to share just one quote from a writer, Wesley Hill, as we begin to conclude our time. 
And Wesley says this, he says, go find a quiet place where you can relax, Jesus seems to say. Unclench your fists, breathe deeply, let your heart rate decrease. Know that you're already bathed in the Father's love and simply ask for what you need in the assurance that the one to whom you're speaking is already cupping his ear in your direction. That's what prayer should be. And so as we enter into our time growing and learning and experiencing the prayer that the Lord taught us, my prayer for you is that you would know the love of your heavenly father. That when you begin to pray, when you enter into prayer, that the first place you would go, the place to start, would be to know that you are deeply loved by God and that God is longing to hear from you. That as Hill says, his ear is already cupped in your direction to hear your prayer. And so may you know God's love. And may you experience a life of prayer, a life of relationship, a life of knowing your heavenly father who loves you deeply. Amen.